0: Well, good morning once again, dear saints. Uh, So good to see you this morning and to hear the singing uh, of God's praises. Uh, We do have much to rejoice in as believers uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ as those who do hold to God's sovereignty. He is a good and faithful God. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to be Looking at verses 25 through 31 this morning, and along with those who are in this narrative this morning, asking this question <clears throat> Where is he from? It's a loaded question this morning. Uh, many of you know the answer to this question. We've been talking about this as we've been walking through the Gospel of John together. Yet we see sort of a, a new audience here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, where Jesus is currently in John chapter 7. And uh, since it's been a while, uh, since we've been in uh, the Gospel of John, a bit of review is in order. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths is another way it's called. And he has gone up secretly, knowing that the religious leaders are looking to kill him. And so uh, it's not his time yet. He's told this to his brothers. In fact, he uses the phrase in our text today, it is not uh, his hour, or, or at least the uh, author, John, says that about uh, the inability of the religious leaders to capture him. It is not his hour. It is not his time to die. Yet he, in this setting, continues to proclaim Uh, who he is he reveals that he is aware of the fact that they're looking to kill him and though he has done good by healing a man on the sabbath they seek to kill him because he is breaking their understanding of what it means to keep this law and as well beyond that we already understand that they're seeking to kill him because he has called himself god's son and therefore making himself equal with God. But even with all of this, there is inaction on the part of the leaders to do anything to him. And this is where we pick up in the narrative uh, today. So one more time, uh, if you are able to, would you please stand? I know we've had you up and down quite a bit on Sunday mornings here. But uh, John chapter 7, I'm going to read aloud as you follow along, verses 25 through 31. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. On the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Will he do more signs than this man has done? You may be seated. That is the reading of God's word in the New Testament. It may be a blessing to you this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, what a joy to read here in your word. Yet many of the people believed in him. There are so many of us who sit here this morning as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus. And as such, Lord, we desire to be refreshed in our understanding of what it means to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be refreshed by the gospel through the means of grace that is the preaching of the word, through the means of singing songs that Refresh, Lord, the grace in our minds once again and in our hearts that strengthens our faith to say, yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that He is both God and man, and man in the incarnation for sure. And that He continues to have these two natures in one person. We must believe this. And yet there may be some in our midst this morning who have not Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that they would come to know you through the preaching of the gospel. And that, Lord, you would take their dead and stony heart and turn it to flesh and make it alive, Lord, that they might receive the gifts of repentance and faith this morning and come to truly know you and to be reconciled to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we study this text together for those who know you, that we would indeed be refreshed today in these truths. I pray that you would get me out of the way, continue to humble me, that your spirit, Lord, this morning would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these truths and an application of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in the U.S., we tend to put a lot of stock in where someone is from. Growing up in the South as a child, I used to think the term, uh, I used to use the term, excuse me, Yankee pejoratively. Forgive me, please, for that. Um, I did not think highly of people from the North. It just was, uh, not, not to make an excuse, but it really was a part of my upbringing. Um, so that's not where I stand today, believe me. I feel like I'm from up North now, <laughs> at least from the Midwest Anyway. I was also told from a young age that since I was born in New Orleans, I was a Cajun. If you don't know what a Cajun is or someone who's a Creole, maybe you've heard of Cajun spice. and Maybe you think I'm kind of spicy, but that's not what I mean by that. There's an actual people from uh, the Acadians is what it is called. And that's where the term Cajun comes from. And you may have heard the term Creole. And though I am mainly Italian, I do have French in my background. The name Alagut, at least as my mom has traced the origins of our family tree, is apparently an English transformation of the French name Alaguerre. And perhaps the idea of being born a Cajun, at least geographically, has some sort of an environmental effect on me, since I do like shrimp and crawdad etouffee and lots of spicy things. We all have stories about where we were born and the environment in which we were born And it's all very fascinating. I really enjoy sitting down with people and just hearing about, you know, where they were born, where they grew up. I I was born in New Orleans, but I did not grow up there. I was born there, and seven weeks later, my parents moved back to Florida, where they were from. And so I grew up very much a a Floridian. And my dad would say he's a Florida cracker, uh, not in the pejorative sense of that term, though he would teach me to say Yankee. No, he didn't teach me that. It's just something that was part of the culture, unfortunately. But I love to hear that. I love to hear about the stories of where people come from. And um, even if you have done any tracing back into your family tree and you know when your families maybe uh, immigrated to the United States um, and, and those sorts of things. I love hearing uh, about those kinds of origins. And, and yet the award for most unique story of where one is from must go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is one who can claim to be both one who is the son of man, born of a virgin, unique in and of itself as no one else has been born in that manner, from Mary, uh, God miraculously having him implanted in the womb of Mary so that he could be born of a virgin from the line of David, and yet also the eternal son of God sent from the Father, at a particular time, and with the purpose to save the lost, to understand this as a part of the plan of the eternal God for his own glory and for the redemption of mankind is very important, as we will see today in fact it 's Part and parcel of our main point, you have that written for you uh, on your bulletin. If you happen to be watching the live stream, you should have had that emailed to you. And you can see this written there. Belief in Jesus' origins, and I do have origins in quotation there because we need to be careful about how we speak of this. But belief in Jesus' origins is just as vital as anything else we believe about him. So let me clarify, and we'll see this throughout the text this morning. When I use the word origins, I'm not saying that Jesus had a beginning in terms of existence, but where is he from? Well, he is from heaven. He has said this already in the Gospel of John. He is from the Father, he says, in the Gospel of John. There are theological implications of that, not just about the preexistence of Jesus, which, of course, John has already addressed in his prologue in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1 but as well uh, the inter-Trinitarian relations as we understand them. uh, And uh, we talk about things like eternal generation, that the Son is uh, from the Father eternally. And those are things we can't get our minds wrapped around uh, specifically, but we do believe that Jesus eternally exists as the Son, Um, even though pre-incarnation he did not have the name Jesus. He was eternally the Son of God. And yet we also must recognize in regard to origins as we speak of the humanity of Jesus that he did have a beginning point in the sense of the eternal being um, wed to, if you will, the, the, the natural, the two natures of the incarnation, the eternal and the uh, human nature existing in one person who now eternally exists as those two natures, yet his body has been glorified. That's a whole lot of information to take in, but that is the basis, that is the understanding we have from Scripture that comes forth not only in this passage, but as we synthesize the Scriptures together to understand these matters theologically. So this morning I want us to see three stages in the discussion around the origins of Messiah. And that is how this conversation is really framed, It's really framed around this idea of Messiah. So the idea that Israel is awaiting one who would come to uh, fulfill the prophecies in the Old Covenant, one who would come to, uh, in many ways that were understood, in many ways that were not understood, as we see in the unfolding of the Gospel of John, to fulfill those prophecies and even fulfill typologies, the ways in which typologically we can look back and say um, these were echoes or foreshadowings of who the Messiah would be. And that is very much on the mind of Israel um, in the days of Jesus. And and we could probably even say on the minds of some of uh, the Jews that even live today. So three stages, though, in the discussion of this this morning. The question number one of Messiah and his origins. This is where we begin. The question. Of Messiah and his origins in verses 25 through 27. In response to what they have just heard, the people have a question about Messiah. Look at what it says in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, and and that just indicates the things that Jesus has said previously about himself and, and sort of the things that they have gathered about who Jesus is, this raises a question about who this man is, and then about who Messiah is. Look at what it says. Is, this not, uh, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So they're hearing Jesus and what he is saying. They are aware, at least tangentially, about what he has done. Some of them... Uh, are certainly from outside of the region of Jerusalem coming here for the feast of tabernacles so they've perhaps heard of what Jesus has done and said and and and, and they're hearing him now speak these things about being sent from the Father or being sent from God and having the authority from God to teach these things and, and, and all the things that are found uh, previously. And, and some of them have already accused him of having a demon. And, and so we're just continuing to kind of have this conversation about who is this. And now, as they hear these things, the, the crowd's kind of wondering, like, why haven't the authorities stepped in at this point? Why have they not said anything? Is it because they think this could be the Messiah? Very important question, a question that the authorities do not like that people are asking, as we'll see in the following passage that we'll look at together in the coming weeks. But it's interesting where this discussion goes. They have been witness to things that have never been seen before. And remember, they have only ever been taught from the Old Testament. And so they're... Thinking about these things, again, we see the crowd at the end of this passage. uh, Will the Messiah do more signs than this man has done? What do they know about what Jesus has done? What do they perceive about the things that he has done? Remember, miracles are not an everyday occurrence. They occur in time periods and for only a season. Think of uh, these kind of three big uh, instances, if you will. You kind of have Moses... And Elijah and elisha, and so kind of those last two compressed together there, because elijah uh, or, or Elisha receives the mantle from Elijah to continue that prophetic ministry but but really, these sort of major occurrences of of uh, miracles only happen at certain times and for brief times. not that god doesn 't work uh, for lack of better terms supernaturally uh, throughout the Old Testament, we really only see. People performing miracles as a prophet in very few seasons. Uh, These really are kind of the big three until Jesus comes to earth. So so think about the time uh, of uh, Elisha's ministry ending up until Jesus uh, steps foot on on the earth and what is the gap of the miraculous, what has been recorded at least in Scripture. It's It's a huge gap. But the question that leads to the messianic sort of question here is about who Jesus is and what the religious leaders are seeking to do. Well, the question may be, who are the people who are saying this? And I've sort of addressed this already, but it seems like there are those who are there who have witnessed what Jesus has done, and then there are those who have come into the region from outside of Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles in order to be a part of that. And they really have only maybe heard about these things. And now they're seeing it. They're witnessing Jesus and uh, say these things. And they're saying, what is going on here? It's clear that at least whoever they are, they are aware of the plan to kill Jesus. Isn't that interesting that that is known? Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now, it seems like if you look earlier in this chapter that This is kind of word that's spreading because what does it say earlier there in chapter 7? It says that um, they were going throughout the feast looking for him so that they might arrest him. And certainly they make it aware that they want to kill him. Yet they also recognize, even though there are threats, the religious leaders are not doing anything even though Jesus is speaking and proclaiming openly. And so they're looking at this man, now proclaiming who he is, talking about being sent from God, some have accused him of being a demon, and others are saying, wait, hang on a second, is this not the one that they're seeking to kill? And yet he, here he is speaking openly, and they're not doing anything. And this leads to this greater question, if they're not seizing him, perhaps he truly is the Messiah. And as I mentioned, this certainly doesn't make the religious leaders very happy, as we'll see later on. But even as the people are, who are talking about the Messiah, um, they, they then begin to question the origins of Jesus over against what they think are the origins of Messiah. They say they know where Jesus is from. So, so they kind of ask this question, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And then verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This question about where Messiah comes from likely has more to do with the mystery surrounding the family of Messiah rather than the idea of a place. In other words, many knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, but likely this has more to do with we know who Jesus' family is. Can anyone know which family the Messiah is from? This stems from an old rabbinic teaching, not a biblical teaching, certainly, but an old rabbinic teaching that said that um, there are certain things that will be a mystery and a surprise. And one of those things that was constantly talked about is the Messiah coming on the scene will be a shock, and no one will know where he is from. But what we tend to see here is a pattern that is established in the Gospels. It's very similar to the question raised about Jesus when People critically say, isn't this just the carpenter's son? In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. In other words, they're looking at um, Jesus and they're saying, well, maybe the authorities aren't going after him because he's the Messiah. But hang on a second. This This is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the carpenter's son. We know who he is. So perhaps in one sense... God is beginning to work through the false teaching that they have been taught. Maybe we can look at this in a positive way. Like they're they're just beginning to their minds are beginning to churn about what do we what have we been taught about Messiah? And, but we know where this man is from. Can can anybody know where the Messiah is from? And and really even if that is so, we really come back to this issue of the identity of Jesus that we've been seeing come up in the Gospel of John over and over again. It's a constant question in this Gospel. And it's one that he constantly addresses. We're not going to see something spectacularly different in what Jesus says here in a moment. But we come once again to realize what Jesus says earlier is true. They are unwilling to believe, many of them, not all of them, as we see. Praise the Lord. Some come to believe in him here. But they are not willing to believe because they are not drawn by the Father Essentially, he says, I keep telling you who I am, where I have come from, and yet you will not believe because the Father has not drawn you. The answer to this question of Jesus' identity is not up to us or anyone else to decide. The question is not, what does Jesus mean to me? Or anything like that. The reality is what Jesus says concerning himself is the most important thing. What is your answer to the question, who is Jesus? Again, we go back to our main point. We must believe the truth of who Jesus is, who he says that he is, where he says he comes from. In one sense, we say his origin is from the Father in the sense not that he was at any time created. He is eternal, but he comes from the Father. Uh, one uh, person says he comes Uh, From being with the Father to be with us. John chapter 1 indeed says that, does it not? He came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. What is your answer to the question of who is Jesus? Is he the long-awaited Messiah? The answer to that that Jesus gives here is yes, he is. And where does the Messiah come from? He comes from the Father. And we know as well that he is born in Bethlehem, what we heard in our text this morning. So he is also from the Father. He is also, when he puts on humanity, from Bethlehem and then from Nazareth, from Galilee. This question that we asked this morning, it is the most important question, and as is the way in which you answer it so important. We either take Jesus at his word or we deny the whole thing. Kids, remember last week I gave you something for for you to hang on to. So parents, pay attention to this. Maybe write it down and speak with your children about this later, later. Kids, let me just say this. What Jesus says is always true. What Jesus says is always true. What Jesus says about who he is and where he comes from, he never lies. Hang on to that. Adults, we need to hang on to that. What Jesus says is always true. This question about the origin of Messiah leads to Jesus responding to their queries. Don't our hearts just kind of long for a response from Jesus when these kinds of questions are raised about his origins or who he is? Look at verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed. This word means here, uh, maybe some of your translations actually say this. He cries out as he teaches in the temple. You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He begins by saying and proclaiming, You know me, and you know where I have come from. It's really interesting that Jesus does this while he's in the temple, the center of worship in Israel, that he would proclaim these truths about himself in the very place where People would gather to worship. Jesus eventually says that the, the location of the temple moves from him uh, moves from the temple to him to, the, to his body. And he talks about the, the temple being torn down and being raised again in, in three days. He speaks of the temple of his body. and so here he is in the temple, the centrality of, lo, uh, uh, of Israel, Israelite worship uh, proclaiming a reason that he ought to be worshipped. He says, you know me, you know where I come from. Likely, there's sort of a double sense here. You know I am from Nazareth and who my family is, but you also have heard me say I am from the Father. At this point, Jesus is holding them to a standard of what he has proclaimed. And, and perhaps um, we can imagine that Jesus in his grace and his mercy is proclaiming this once again because there are those who maybe only heard this sort of as echoes out in the country land surrounding jerusalem and now there are these who have gathered into the feast of tabernacles and here he is in the permanent tabernacle as it were in their mind proclaiming who he is and he says you know where i come from you've heard yes truly i come from nazareth but you've also heard me say and i'm going to proclaim once again i am also from heaven the second part is tied to what he says here when he says, I have not come of my own accord. Jesus is not saying he has nothing to do with his coming. He is stating that he does not come on his own volition. In other words, um, we think of Trinitarian language here uh, as we ought to, as we read all of the scriptures, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in all of the activity that occurs within the scriptures. And, and, and Jesus does not come on his own, of his own volition. This is an inter-Trinitarian um, eternal decree that the Son would come. And, and we as uh, those with finite minds, we have to think of things logically. We have to think of things in order. Uh, but, but there is no logical order in the sense of God's eternal decree. It just is, just as he is. And so we talk about things like the Son agreed to come and to be the sacrifice. And we talk about uh, things like the pactum salutis. It's a big um, uh, Latin phraseology that you can write down and impress some people with over lunch. But it is this idea that between the Father and the Son, there is a pact that He would come and redeem a people for His own. We use these kinds of terminology to to help us think through this idea that Jesus is saying, this is not just of me. He has been sent. This is, again, this theological point that we come back to over and over and over again when Jesus uses this kind of language. There's this eternal relationship. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. The Spirit is always the Spirit. And the idea of the Son being the eternal Son always... Uh, eternally, is worked out in space and time in the sending of the eternal Son into the world in the Incarnation. Now listen, this is something that our finite minds cannot get uh, wrapped around completely. But we understand this. The Son is sent from the Father, and in space and time, this occurs at the Incarnation. The Son comes into the world and puts on humanity. Further, Jesus says, of the one who has sent him, that is the Father, of course, that the Father is true, and they they do not know him. That the Father is true, but they do not know him. This again is a slap in the face to the Jewish people who thought they had exclusive rights to God. Uh, Jesus is saying, look, if you knew the Father, then you would recognize who I am. Because the Father has revealed this to you in the Scriptures, and you search the Scriptures to find salvation, and yet as you search them, you do not find me. That is what the Scriptures are pointing to is the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus. You know, in a sense, they do have rights to God. Uh, Jesus is continuing, uh, continuing the idea that if they do not believe in him, they do not truly know the Father. In other words, you had this information, but you have not done well with it so that you do not recognize me. Look at John chapter 5, just a page over for many of us. Keep your finger in John 7. John chapter 5, verses 37 through 38. This is absolutely condemning language as Jesus speaks to the Jewish people who have the Scriptures, who in some sense, as I said, have the the, the rights to knowing God. But listen to what Jesus says here in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Where has he done that? He has done that in the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Father who sent me uh, he, uh, he has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is an echo again of that sentiment back in chapter 7. You know me, and you know where I come from, But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. On the other hand, Jesus says, verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. On the flip side of this conversation is that, once again, inter-Trinitarian relationship. Jesus knows the Father. They have an intimate, eternal knowledge of one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they've eternally existed in one essence and yet two persons, and then we think of the Spirit three persons. We see again this eternal relationship is played out in the Father sending and the Son coming. To what end has the Son come into the world? Well, He says to seek and to save that which is lost. However, He does that to the end that the Father is glorified, and and that as this becoming all in all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are mutually glorified. Listen, church, can we just pause for a moment and think about this? We're so quickly uh, distracted, so easily distracted. There is no greater goal in all, of the created universe than the glorification of the triune God. No greater goal. You may say, well, well, God saves us. Isn't that a great goal? Yes, and amen. And thank goodness he does. Thank him that he does. Praise him that he does. But to what end? To the glory of his holy and righteous name. He is the only one who deserves glory and worship. Again, we wrestle with our own agenda of self-praise. And the unregenerate cannot get away from self-praise. They seek the praise of men and lift themselves up to be God, just as it began in the garden. Are you willing to bend your knee to Christ? There is coming a day when you will, regardless, and for those who haven't done it on this side, it will be too late. I plead with you today, turn to Christ. Kids, let me just say a simple word this morning for you to hang on to. Parents, encourage your children with this this afternoon. Maybe read through this and think about this point. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is who he says he is. He, everything he always says is true. Everything he, he, he says is always true. And Jesus is who he says he is. Believer, are we daily leaning on Jesus and trusting that he is who he says he is? And that he will fulfill his promises. Are we meditating upon his word and those promises. And believing that he is the yes and amen to God's promises. He is the only savior and righteous Lord. Who has come to seek and to save the lost. And he along with the father and the spirit are transforming us into his image. Our goal is to glorify him and love him. Tell others of him and then love them as we are telling them about him and loving the church as well. This is not done in our own strength, but just as God justifies us by his grace through his spirit, he is also sanctifying us. He is also making us into the image. Well, some of the crowd and the leaders are not pleased with Jesus' assessment that they do not know God. Others, however, we see fall under conviction, and this leads us to our final Point number three, actions taken toward Jesus in verses 30 and 31. Actions taken toward Jesus. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The goal of the religious leader and at least some of the people after they hear these words from Jesus, I mean, you have to imagine some of these people have heard everything that Jesus has said publicly and it's just starting to pile up and pile up and pile up. And some are saying, this is it. We've got to rid ourselves of this person. But this is not the time for Jesus to be arrested, tried, and crucified. It is not his hour. This is the language that is used in the New Testament. John uses it here. <clears throat> It says, uh, But no one laid a hand on him, even though they wanted to, because his hour had not yet come. As we discussed before, the concept of his hour refers ultimately to the time of his death. But this is according to God's plan and not man's plan, though men will be held Will not be held guiltless. Men will be held responsible. Listen to the words of Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It's Peter speaking at Pentecost, preaching about Jesus Christ says, Men of Israel, now notice, please pay attention here because this plays right into our passage. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Isn't that interesting language there? I mean, John wrote the Gospel of John. Luke wrote the book of Acts. But there's one super intending author. There's the divine author who brings it all together. Jesus of Nazareth. We know where he's from, right? But what about these mighty works that have happened? What are we to think of these? Well, they are an attestation of who he is in your midst. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What does that mean? In God's determined time by his determined plan, the men who wanted to kill Jesus did that. And they were lawless. They'll be held responsible for it unless they repent and believe. But it was according to God's plan. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is the gospel. That is the gospel, and it is on God's timetable. Yet, even as we see these who are rising up in order to want to take Jesus uh, into custody and to kill him, there is this tremendous amount of hope that is given to us in verse 31. What a great verse to memorize as we think about the context. Perhaps commit this to memory. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, and you can hear the echoes of Peter's sermon on Pentecost here, even though it's after this. When the Christ, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Some were beginning to believe in him. And their reasoning is the very reason that Peter gives and that God did it for. That these signs would point and say, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the one whom God sent. This is what the signs were for and pointed to. I wholeheartedly believe that God is sovereign in the saving of people and that God is not only the God of the ends, he is the God of the means to those ends. The signs were to point to the reality of Jesus as Messiah. This is what the word Christ means, remember. It is the Greek term for Messiah. The people respond to this by God's grace and understand exactly what these signs he does mean. Yet we also must recognize that all who witnessed the signs were responsible for their response to Jesus. Many denied it. And yet here we see some trusted. Kids, a little bit longer one here, okay? Believe in Jesus and continue to believe in him. He is the only way to be made right with God. Children, believe in Jesus and continue to believe in him. He is the only way to be made right with God. As believers this morning, we need to be committed to not having a simple understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, but to seek to study, believe, and love the fullness of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This takes the hard work of studying the scriptures and wrestling with the revelation that God has given us. The deeper we dig, the greater our sense of awe and wonder and the greater our worship. There is a reason for the plan of the Trinity. I'm sorry, there is, there is a reason that the plan of the Trinity was not for the Son just to be beamed down on Friday and be crucified and then raised on Sunday. And we have just glimpsed a part of that this morning once again. Believer, worship the triune God this morning. Seek to honor and love him. Proclaim the gospel truth to others and encourage one another with these truths that we study together this morning. And then lastly, for those who have not trusted Christ, I plead with you this morning to see what is proclaimed here in this text. Know that Jesus is God and he came to us from the Father. He put on humanity, humbled himself, lived righteously in the place of sinners, took the death and penalty deserved by sinners and victoriously rose from the dead three days later. And he is coming again. And if we have believed in him, we are going to be with him. Or we are condemned because we do not believe in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these truths. I pray that you would plant them deep in our hearts. Help us as we meditate upon them and pray to you because of them. For those of us in you, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would continue to do a work of conforming us to the image of Christ. Lord, may we rejoice today in what we have seen and be uh, encouraged again by the refreshing of the gospel truth in our hearts this morning. And yet for those who do not know you who may be in our midst, Lord, I pray that the gospel and your Spirit would convict them of their need to turn to you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.